Hey everybody and welcome to Space 10 Radio, coming to you from Mexico City. Today we're talking about one of our favorite topics, cities. Cities are at the heart of so many of the challenges we face, which means they're also at the heart of the solutions. We have an unprecedented opportunity to reimagine, adapt and design our cities to be places that feel better for more people while also addressing the climate crisis. So today we ask, what if our cities were resourceful, accessible, shared, safe and desirable? How would that impact our quality of life? And what possibilities emerge when cities are not only economically productive, but resilient to population growth? Joining us for this important conversation is Mario Ballesteros, a Mexico City-based curator, editor and researcher, Sergio Beltran Garcia, an architect, activist and researcher with forensic architecture, Carolina Crespo Uribe, senior architect, and Victor M. Rico Espinola, director of urban design, both from Oficina de Resiliencia Urbana, and finally, Guillaume Charny-Brunet, development director at Space 10. Come join the conversation. I want to thank you all first for your time and for sharing your insights with us. Um, and we're basically going to ask a couple of questions, start to link between uh, the different approaches to the theme. And then I'd love for the audience to feel free uh, to jump in whenever. We'll have some time for questions at the end, but if you really feel the need to speak and join the conversation, please do so. Um, and my first question is for Carolina and Victor from Oru, from Oficina Resilienza Urbana. Um, how do you approach designing for the future at Oru? And I'm really interested, just following up to that question, in understanding how you struggle also with not only user-centered design, which is already difficult for a lot of designers and architects, lots of people uh, in our creative practices struggle with thinking beyond the professional scope of their work, so really participatory design. I mean, these principles Uh, that are an essential part of human-centered design. How do you see that becoming even more difficult for your practice uh, when you're talking about, for instance, water memory, which I thought was a beautiful term, or these sort of things that escape us, really, and that challenge the essence of how we understand ourselves as, human, as humans? So three very simple questions <laughs> poured into one. Who wants to start? <laughs> All right, maybe I can start, and then Caro, if you want to compliment. So I think we take a look at the future by reviewing uh, the past as well, and through research. Uh, there are a lot of clues embedded in the past that give us ideas as to what the future can actually look like. Uh, Water, of course, uh, we live in a basin that's an, an endorheic basin, so that means if we stop pumping water out, water can actually stay here and as we mentioned if we let water stay if we make room for water transformation can occur so we can only speculate as to what could happen if we let that happen and if we design for water and by doing that we are we're also allowing other living beings to coexist with us i guess uh, when i when i when i see your work i think a lot of like going to the supermarket and buying a piece of meat and it's like It's so difficult to understand where that comes from. And I think what you're doing somehow also 
reminds us, even though we've taught it, even though we know it, it's very difficult, even for people who, like us, have grown here in Mexico City and lived here all our lives. It's really difficult to fathom that amount of uh, sort of change that has gone on for the last couple of hundred years and how it really defines the way we live every day. That's right. I, I mean, we've all seen, like speaking about markets, like we've seen how here in Mexico City people love to wash floors uh, of markets and sidewalks and everywhere with potable water. That's a, a luxury in a city like this one. So we just think like, what happens if this water is not potable? What happens if this water is treated? And that treated water, it comes from the rain that's falling on the, you know, on the roof of the market, for, for instance. We just need to make sure to design uh, the space for that water to occupy a space in the city and start thinking about the city less in this romantic uh, view of the city of the city of the lakes and rather as a sponge. And this is something we, we're really fascinated by. Uh, the other question, and maybe Karyu can help me here, is that uh, we believe that architects need to be brave and uh, start uh, 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 finding uh, utility outside our comfort zone, which is design. And we need to uh, design methodologies that incorporate uh, informed design by research, by participatory processes, and also finding uh, the financing for these projects to actually occur. Because what we need right now are uh, proofs of concept. There are, there's lots of money out there, but uh, investors are kind of uh, scared to invest in something they can't really visualize. And this is where the design disciplines can actually uh, be very helpful. And uh, I can't remember the other question, but. No, about beyond human-centered mm -hmm. or user-centered design, which is a triple yeah. challenge now. Like, how do you, in Oru, incorporate uh, these notions of what goes beyond uh, focusing on humans, thinking about systems, about nature, about other types of uh, collaboration or integration? How does that fit into your design practice? For sure. I think we can start by I think we said it, we're all architects at Oru, but we are kind of redefining what it means to be an architect. I think architectures school all over the world have this vision of you study construction, you build, you develop, there's a lot of bit of sustainability here and there. But I think we saw the opportunity of maybe you're not an architect that's gonna be building, but you can also create futures, possible futures, possible scenarios. And how do you do this? Through research. Like, that's the main part. Start with research, start with data, analyze, but also start talking to people. Start getting people to collaborate with you because you alone can't do that. And you can think, okay, I'm an architect, I have these skills, I read this, I read that, and I can do this. We always approach to others from different uh, backgrounds, different professions, and I think that opened a lot for us. And to this question, especially, like if you talk about sustainability or resilience, and you don't think about the environment and the other species that live with us, like the ecosystems, you can't build a space for the future. Like there is no future scenario within a city full of concrete, as Guillaume said. There's 
no future in life. So I guess it comes from there, like the human-centered design. We start to think more about communities and people and cultures, but then uh, we define that we have to think about ecosystem, animals, plants, flowers, everything that's around us. Yeah, especially, I mean, I think sometimes it's difficult in a, in a big city like Mexico City to, exactly. to know that there are places like Milpa Alta, which are 90% rural mm. or conservation lands, and that is in our own city, or Xochimilco, or all these different ecosystems, or the UNAM, the, the, the uh, park at the UNAM. So, um, I mean, I think it's, it's really fascinating to see that these issues are slowly seeping into the practice as, as, as well. Um, I want to, uh, we'll come back to this later, but um, I want to go back to the question of the future. And I love that you say that for you the future is in the past, because I think that sort of resonates with what we've heard uh, from, from all of you, and especially in Sergio's work. Um, I think your work is uh, very much about dissecting, unraveling, and setting the record straight uh, with what, had ha what has happened and with regards to the past in order to move forward and work towards a better future. Um, it sounds very complex if you think about it, but it's actually the way we sort of live and experience everyday life. I mean, I think the past, especially in a place like Mexico City, which is so abruptly layered and explicitly layered. Uh, but it happens in other places. It happens in cities like Berlin or all these lots of cities that have these layers upon layers upon layers. Um, how do you address this like simple complexity <laughs> in your work? And how, thinking specifically, of the project for the Memorial 19S, which I think with everyone here still resonates still. I mean, it's been a few years, but we're still feeling the scars of that experience. And, and, and they're still around physically. I mean, I know the, the memorial hasn't yet materialized. But I mean, how do you approach that something that's so un tangible and difficult to articulate and then bring it down to street level so that anyone can actually have a say. Okay. Um, well, w one of the things I couldn't really express during my presentation is like this simple formula that, I, uh, that is also one of the tools that I use when, when building memorials. Um, it's kind of like past plus present equals future. It sounds ridiculously obvious, but um, I have applied it in certain uh, memorials that have been built also here in Mexico City, and, and the case of the earthquake memorial is no exception. But we can't just have an understanding of the past in terms of like, in the past, a building fell. Today, like that, that sometimes when we look at the present element of that equation, most people really don't have uh, something to add there. It's almost like a null value in which the only thing that we're adding is the past, and therefore our future, like the, the sum between a past that we know, but a present which we don't look at, equals a future that is equal to the past. So it's no wonder that we're repeating the same mistakes over and over. 
we're not adding the current expressions of systemic violences, which, which were in the past. And also another thing, which what counter-forensic investigation is really productive for, is that we don't really understand events of violence in the past as self-contained events. But more, think of, like, and the earthquake is a good example, but if we think of all of the different conditions, such as, uh, you know, the fact that we live between four tectonic plates, that we live in an endorheic basin with a very specific type of soil, that, and, and that that soil is modified constantly by water, and that there's also, there was also a colonial project about controlling that land and making it predictable so it could become productive that required, the reason why we, we dry, uh, you know, Spanish colonizers started controlling and drying the land was because they needed to reliably understand how land was, was able to become productive. So if we, we put that into mind, all of these different conditions that produce the, the gunpowder, you know, like each of these elements is just adding more gunpowder, more gunpowder, more potential for violence. And then there comes one day when, when there's a spark that, ex that makes it light up and explode into the event that we remember. But sadly, we remember those buildings collapsing, but we don't really remember what actually made that building vulnerable in the first place. And I think it's important to emphasize that architects and designers have a really strong responsibility in that sort of erasing of memory. I mean, it's very evident when it comes to uh, the react response from architects and designers, some of them, of course, not everyone, but just a, a, a coat of paint practically can erase trauma from, from a damaged building. So why do you think we as designers uh, are so uneasy with concepts like justice or violence? Why are they absent from our lexicon? And are you, up, because you said you were optimistic, but are you optimistic that really there can be a sort of auto-critique in design where we recognize that we need to address uh, these issues of which we are part of? I mean, I guess I can speak about, about why designers and architects have become apolitical and, the, and ahistorical. And, and that's actually one of the things that I, I believe why monuments are useless or, or tend to become useless because they become, they become separated from that gunpowder, that past, you know? And they just become uh, like these, these statements that are not politically tied to a context that exacerbates risk or, or historical in the sense that we understand, even going back to 500 years ago, how, how does this building uh, express violences that began a long time ago? So I lived through that process through architecture school and through, um, I mean, it's not a personal critique to my peers, the architects that, that uh, I know, but there is this aversion, and I think it's part of the modern way of thinking in which we believe that our architectural objects and designs are self-contained and divorced from these political, social, historical contexts. So a lot of the work that I think more and more designers are waking up to is that our, pro our projects are never self-contained but not just contained within the neighborhoods and the architectural and urban infrastructure they are part of, but also of these larger architectures that are historical, political, social, economical, et cetera. And I think that is, that is, that is a path that we are, designers and architects are starting to explore as we realize that even the job market of becoming that modernist architecture, architect that you know, designs, architects, et cetera, is unsustainable because we cannot even thrive in that space. 
So we need to look to other design problems that we can look at and, and try to solve. So I, that's why I'm hopeful, because I do see a community, and I agree with my, with, with my fellow panelists, we all stress the importance of collective community action. The first space we need to create as designers is the space where us designers, disgruntled and frustrated designers, meet to have these discussions and figure out what we can do together. And this is one such space. Okay. We haven't really gotten to the title of the talk, which is Neighborhoods and Tomorrow, but we'll get there. Bear with us. Um, I really very quickly want to ask Guillaume uh, about this sort of uh, conscience, let's say. I, I, I'm sure you're going to hate the term, but seeing Space 10 as a sort of critical conscience. Uh, very practical, very hands-on, very friendly, very accessible, but quite critical, really, uh, of the design discipline and current contexts. Um, and I, I really think that this example of concrete uh, is, is, is very evident in the way it is a, a key paradigm, you know, of this heroic idea we have of design and architecture and the possibilities. Uh, but it's so dated, if you think about it. It's, it's completely of the past. And we're still teaching in schools the glories of modernist tropes. Um, so I'm very excited to hear how you are reinventing or critically thinking about these tropes and thinking about materials in a different way, thinking about systems and modularity, which are things that have been in the discourse of architecture and design for a while, but really from a very different perspective. I accept the challenge. Um, First of all, I think, you know, at Space Ten we like sometimes to call ourselves pragmatic idealists. It is very important to look at the future with, you know, the more data you collect, the more pessimistic you'll become. It's very important to cultivate curiosity and optimism as a muscle. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. And there is no point in working towards a future that is pessimistic. On the other hand, pragmatism is about looking at the realities of this world. Um, some of the contradictions we all live around without knowing. I didn't know about concrete before. I didn't know about you know, the real impact of that meat you are talking about in the supermarket. Not only where it comes from, but what it does, what it does to water. You know, a couple of nights ago, Simon reminded us that one burger patty is the equivalent of a thousand gallon of potable water. So instead of asking people to shower once every two days or, or, or reduce the amount of shower, ask them to not eat one, one burger. And then they can't shower the whole freaking year long. So sometimes I think information is not always accessible. Curiosity is what makes it. Pragmatism is what makes it actionable. And at, at Space Sun, at least, that's, that's the kind of, I don't want to say religion, but dogma by which we try to live. And then really acknowledging that, as we've said many times, if we're, if we're the smartest people in the room, we're in the wrong room, so really creating the condition and the space to invite people with the knowledge 
with this understanding of the past and the present, so together we can build an idealistic but pragmatic future. I want to uh, talk about neighborhoods and, and the elephant in the room, which is we, when we think about these issues, right, climate crisis, uh, social injustice, violence, uh, water scarcity, it can be paralyzing. Um, what I find very seductive and smart about the work that you're all doing uh, is this, when you bring that daunting sort of issue that seems unmanageable to a scale where you're thinking, okay, let, let me think about how this is impacting my local supermarket. Why am I buying the meat I am buying? Where is it coming from? What is happening? Why are, do, do my uh, local governments use this specific type of paving or signaling or spend on streetlights instead of spending on uh, daycare for kids? Uh, suddenly, these huge issues can really become manageable. And I think this idea of the neighborhood as a perfect scenario for uh, actual, practical, at least piloting change is something that is very present and very conscious in all of the work of, of our speakers today. So I just want to, and obviously if we're thinking of a place like Mexico City, thinking of a neighborhood, it can be almost Ciudad de Zahualcoyotl, which is four times maybe the size of <laughs> Copenhagen. So again, this definition of uh, what that means and how that can be a key to these big issues, I think is something I'd love to hear all of you talk about. And it's rarely discussed in architecture school where, or design school, we're always seeing the big picture. Uh, but the big picture starts with a small picture. So what is that small picture for each of you and your practices? And why do you think it's important? Um, so one of the problems that I've found with memorials and monuments is that uh, we, we conceive them to be like these, these objects or projects that are at a scale that makes them economically and politically very expensive. And since my work as a designer is to help victims gain access to their right to memory, and I see how these, this, this like misconception of scale makes it really difficult for them to be able to achieve their, their projects, their, their, their memorials. So one of the answers that I've, I've been thinking about for several years is how do I reduce the scale so that those costs are reduced and therefore there are less middlemen, the materials are less expensive, like the, the political will and the, and the permissions you need to get, like you, you like basically e um, take them out of the equation. And the project that I'm, it's right now in its second prototype, but it's called the Dispersed Memorial and it's a DIY kit. It's actually very inspired on Ikea products. Like I even have like a manual that has like the drawings that are exactly like an Ikea. But the idea is, how can like, we give the means of production of memory to the people, the victims themselves, rather than having someone like me? It's almost like designing myself out of this. And the idea is to be able to create um, objects or spaces that work at the neighborhood level, at the family level, 
which can become actionable to derive the processes of justice finding, of truth finding, of repairing. Because there's just such little space for this to work at the scale of a borough or of a city. Like the, the memorial of, of, I don't think there should be one memorial to the earthquake in Mexico City. There should be one at every neighborhood because every neighborhood needs a space from which to organize themselves to prepare themselves for when natural disasters become socially constructed disasters. Yeah, it actually pushes you to go out and interact with people, which is something that sometimes we forget to do. How about Otto? I mean, just uh, to pick up on the memorial, um, when we talked uh, the other day, it left me thinking of, of memorials more, less as monuments and more as maybe interfaces, as cognitive spaces to learn about the past, understand the present, and see what uh, futures are possible. So, um, in in our case, uh, well, Hydric District District neighborhood seems to uh, have some sort of co uh, scalar correlation. Um, I mean, Mexico City is such a huge challenge that you can't at once solve the issue. So this is why we were interested in in the mid medium scale. There's nothing that really defines that medium scale except uh, a, a collection of systems. Like the Hydric District is, is exactly, it's like, um, it's a complex system that's composed of different layers of uh, information like geography, um, water, uh, construction, etc. So for us, the mid-scale the mid uh, could be appealing maybe for authorities, for investors, uh, because it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to um, put into practice uh, different theories, different technologies that are, are already out there. Um, so that's what's most interesting to us about that medium scale. Yeah, I also think, and this came up uh, uh, with, with you, Guillaume, the idea of the neighborhood as a sort of vantage point to understand that we're, we're really on, I hate the expression, but we really are on the same ship together. And I think that reflecting upon the last couple of years, it's been even more evident and crude to understand that everything that happens anywhere affects everyone else. Um, so I'd love to just very quickly before we ask uh, the audience to, to throw some questions at you as well. Um, what is that vision of neighborhoods and the future of neighborhoods from Space 10, thinking of uh, not only these issues like rapid urbanization or uh, economic disparity that have been going on for a really long time, but really the fact that the North is looking more and more like the South, that these informal settlements, I don't only see them happening in places where rural migration to urban migration is happening, but also climate migration, which will be a huge issue uh, everywhere, or even what we're seeing today with the crisis of migration from uh, war-torn countries into places like Europe or within Europe itself. Um, so how does that, those conditions that seem extreme and scary everywhere now, it's not only a question of the South now, 
how um, are you addressing them and why is it important for Space 10, because I know it is, to be in places like Mexico where there is a different kind of experience, but in a way we're a little bit ahead of the curve in <laughs> dealing with crisis and precariousness and violence and these contexts that are becoming more and more common everywhere. I grew up in Mexico City for the past three days. <laughs> My knowledge of the context is uh, super superficial, but it seems that uh, there's still a lot of commonalities. You, you were talking about, about uh, earlier about small picture and big picture. I think in order to be able to clarify and, uh, and create a small picture, you need to have spent a lot of time understanding the big picture. It's our role as designers, as, as researchers, as architects to understand that big picture. And it takes a lot of art and craft to be able to arrive to a point where we can translate it into a small picture that is graspable by the non-professionals of that world. That's the, the first thing. When it comes to our vision of neighborhoods, um, I want to say there is an idealist and there is a pragmatic view on this again. I wish, idealistically, that we could all live in a society that is highly inclusive, just, and fair, and regenerative, and all that. But we are not there yet, are we? Um, our neighborhoods are not even designed for this kind of, of life. Pragmatically, we need to wonder and ask ourselves why. What is blocking it? And those questions are very complex and very contextual. Anything from the laws of the market to regulations, policy, corruptions, customer, people, behavior, customs. All of this makes it e super difficult to boil one picture of one neighborhood that would fit the entire world. I think each neighborhood has its own identity, its own culture. But it, all of it can be constructed on similar pillars. Uh, and I think architecture and design have an enormous role to play to enable that culture. Uh, by design to make our, the space we live in the um, uh, enabler of the culture we want to do. Isn't it often that we say that design is the first sign of human intention? The first step is for us as communities and as neighborhoods to wonder what it is we want to do and us all can mix this idealism and this pragmatism in order to see solutions that are actually feasible here. And yes, there will be a lot of compromise down the line, but what is important and what we try to hang on to also at Space 10 is this, this vision, this North Star. Often we also always say that the future is not a destination, it's a direction. And it's a little bit frustrating because you can never catch the future. But we, you can aim for it. And the best thing we can do, I think, as designers, architects, citizens, people, is to wonder what is the kind of future we want to live in and do our best uh, to aim towards that with all the adjustments that will be necessary and, and all the compromise that pragmatism will dictate in order to arrive to the next best thing, always. Um, we could go on and on, but I'd love to <laughs> hear from the audience if there's any questions or anyone would like to chip in to the conversation. Hi. Um, I have a question for our water 
slightly quite naive, maybe. So bear with me. But we are in Mexico City, and the aquifers have somewhat been emptied. And you speak about water. You want to maintain water in the city. Is there a way to fill up the aquifers? So the kind of water that we are mostly interested in in uh, hydric districts is actually residual waters. That's a continuous flow of water. There's like a, an immense amount of water flowing down the pipelines that we never see. So that's, that's an, a, a critical uh, kind of water that we want to focus on. Also rainwater. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly, but uh, there's plenty of water that falls in the city from the sky and also under the ground. Uh, it's hard to actually infiltrate uh, water because you need to take care of quali the quality of the water that you are uh, injecting back to the aquifers. You would need to uh, clean that water so much that if it's already potable, well, why put it in the aquifer? You, you just better drink it. But the best way to protect the aquifers is actually protecting the conservation areas. These are the most important uh, spaces for aquifer recharge. Uh, there are a lot of pressures in those areas, so it's important to, to, be, to, to protect these areas, but also um, releasing these areas of pressure by better managing the water on urban surface. Just to follow up, because I, I think that was a genius question, a, dis, uh, a deceptively simple question. What does that look like? I mean, what does a responsibly regenerated water management system look like in a place like Mexico City? I mean, is it canals? Is it <laughs> lakes? Is it, I mean, how do you envision it? I don't know if that sort of pushes a little further <laughs> into your question. I'm just going to begin, Carolyn, if you want to add. Yep. Um, so there's different, di different solutions that we can uh, look upon. So uh, almost a third of the space in cities are streets. And currently, streets are not designed to accommodate water. So that's one option. Um, the other is that the city is working as, a, as an artifact that is dehydrating its own basin and other basins. So, one way to better manage water is to actually make yourself, yourself responsible by, for that water. Not just like basically expelling it to other basins and uh, have someone else to take care of that, of that water. So it's actually keeping it here is the best way to release other basins of that uh, pressure. Um, to us, I think it's a lot about this scale thing we talked about before, like zoom in and zoom out, zoom in and zoom out. And to find solutions for different areas. For example, it's very different what you would do in the city center than what you would do in Xochimilco, for example, in the southern area that we still have some part of the remaining lake. So maybe it's this uh, coming in and coming out and finding the solutions that can work better in each area and also to understand that there is water it's very something that happens in Mexico City a lot in raining season is that you see a lot of rain a lot of flooding but then you're at home and you don't have uh, water to drink or you can't take a bath or a shower and 
This is uh, insane when you think about it. So it's about finding the systems, stop extracting, keep what you already have under and treat what you get like from rain, for instance, or soapy water, sewage. There's a lot of things that can be engineered to stop these like insane systems that we showed. I think there was May another question around that. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, just, please. just reflecting out loud here a little bit, but your pre presentations were amazing earlier. And what, what strikes me also is that when we start talking about water for Mexico City, we, we start talking about access to potable water. Um, but then when you hear you, Sergio, there's a very direct connection between the, the quantity of la uh, water in the soil and the safety the um, structural integrity of the whole city is based on not drying those soils too much. What I sit with as a naive question again is, is it seems to be, water seems to be not only about an hypothetical access to potable water for people or being able to take long showers or something, it's about being able to live in Mexico. It's about uh, also avoiding this you know, never again, but at a, state, at a scale that is unprecedented. And when you see what a country or a city is able to do for a, a sanitary crisis like COVID-19, all the sacrifice, all the investments, all the uh, troubles, or the changes of our day-to-day -day life, how when facing such very obvious interconnected problems, can we turn a blind eye? And I say we, I've, I've, I grew up here for three days, but <laughs> how can we, how, how is, not, is that not absolute top of mind of every single policies or elections or de public debate here in Mexico? No, just to like add quickly, like, I mean, it's a problem of narration and, and like at the core of the culture that, that we have. And we've been mentioning extractivism. And the reason why Mexico City treats its water that way also has to do with centralization of power, of economy here, in terms that the entire basins around Mexico City need to serve as water, and we need to expel it to them as wastewater. So there's something that really needs to change in the core of thinking ourselves from being hydrophobic to hydrophilic. And this, this you mentioned the sponge, like the city as a sponge, I mean, it's very productive to think about how we need to, we need to realize that our soil is a sponge, a sponge that is getting dry, and as it gets dry, it gets brittle, it breaks, it cracks. So if we start, I think, narrating the issue of water beyond the obvious, which is about being able to drink water and like service ourselves with, with hygiene and so on, to like, it's a matter of life or death, because it is true, like the city will become inhabitable in maybe 30 years if we don't fix this like soon. And so I think us designers also need to start thinking about not just designing products, services, systems, but also stories. Because that is what can connect to people out there and, and start a political movement that demands from our decision makers. We cannot keep ignoring this story because it's heading towards a terrible ending. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's also like a level we need to start engaging at is narration. There was a question around there. Hi. Um, just as a thought, the creation of space is political. And spaces 
have potential for political agency. So I wanted to know if within your initiatives you consider which could, which could be the spatial characteristics that could uh, encourage the, that political agency for memory, for truth, for innovation, for water, among other things. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, like, I mean, I think this is something we really need to, like, come to terms with. Space, the creation of space and the occupation of space is also political. Um, so you ask, like, which could be the spatial characteristics of, of such a space that can create um, opportunities for, for political organization, for agency? Uh, I think it's something that is extreme. It's, it's, it's I don't want to become, like, too idealist, and I mean, I am an activist, but, and it's kind of my job to, like, be a, idealistic and unrealistic sometimes, but pragmatism really is important to be able to make these things actionable. Um, it's something I've actually faced when I engage with governments in terms of like proposing memorials. They often ask, well, well how is this going to look like? And they expect a render. They, they're thinking about the day they're going to cut the ribbon, take picture, fi finish photograph, forget. They don't and the moment where I tell them, well, I don't know how your memorial is going to look like, that's exactly why I'm asking you to give us a space of months or whatever so I can figure out in a participative open process with victims, with stakeholders, with neighbors, with etc., how this memorial is going to figure out. And in about a number of months, I'll come back and show you after several iterations of design how the memorial is going to be. You can't tell politicians, I don't know. When you tell them, I am going to create a space of chaos, a space of loose ends, of political self-organization. They get really freaking scared. So the resistance of, of, of creating spaces, really like the best space of memory, the best space for political action is, is, a, is, a, is a slab. It's just like floor, um, a plaza. I mean, I think a lot about the, the Zócalo, the center of Mexico City, as, as one such space. It's a space of possibility that you shouldn't, no one should ever be able to control police or surveil. <laughs> and so that's, that's, I mean, to go to finish, that's the immense difficulty of us as architects creating space, because what we're being called upon is to not design, like, if, if we go to the radical expression of what you're asking, how do we achieve that? Then it means then we, we don't need to design at all. We just need to create space for other people to inhabit and decide what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, or maybe, uh, maybe yes, design, but not necessarily the space, but actually a process, mm -hmm. a larger process that is inclusive, that uh, is sensitive to political times, that is sensitive to information, that's sensitive to the experience of people that are living in the area. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think designing the process and being inclusive uh, is, you know, it's, is, possibly, is a possibility to, to have uh, uh, political spaces and spaces where people are actually learning about, about the city that they're living in and the possibilities that are, are out there in the specific field that surrounds urban village or the, this idea of uh, new building systems, new value proposition, etc. 
Um, <clears throat> I think what is really important is to understand that this kind of solution doesn't come out of nowhere. This kind of solution needs to make sense on an existing system where multiple stakeholders have very different interests. Cities have different interests than real estate developers. Contractors have very different uh, interests than the people that are going to live in. Uh, designing a solution that works is designing a solution that alleviates some of the main pain points of each of those stakeholders. In the case of cities, I haven't met one that says, I have all the affordable housing that I want. I have all the uh, sustainable standards that I want for my city, and I have already uh, inclusive communities thriving within my walls. Um, they, there is a general consensus that cities do need more affordable and more sustainable type of construction. That's one thing. So the next cha challenge is how do you make it viable for real estate developers, for general contractors to actually accept this change of paradigm and to slightly change an industry that has quite frankly not changed for the past several uh, centuries. We still construct the same way we did. Um, actually, it was, I think it was a McKinsey study that said construction is the second least innovated industry on right after hunting. Uh, and and, and one, one, one absolute truth, I believe, is that this industry that has not been innovated on for such a long time is desperately craving innovation because all those stakeholders have an interest in making that game a little bit more efficient for the benefits of cities and for the benefits of individuals and for neighborhoods to thrive again. I just, yeah, I just want to help. Just want to add one last thing about it. I think we have to let the bad news be out and let people be very aware of what we're actually living and that can lead a path to see the different layers that construct the space. Because as you said, it's extremely complicated. Yeah, we have a couple of <coughs> other questions. I have a quick question, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. Today we talk about tomorrow's neighborhood and we quickly just talk about cities and the big cities and the mega cities. And yet, it seems like all the problem seems to be in the fact that these cities are so big uh, and complex. Is the cities even the desirable future we want to live in? Or could the future neighborhood and the way we design buildings based on also your presentation be outside the cities as we know them to be like uh, are we maybe a bit naive trying to solve the city rather than just finding a way for people not to move to the city in the first place? I'm curious to hear your point on that. Sure. I actually think about that all the time. <laughs> like when I became an architect then I was interested in urban design, urban planning, cities, and then I'm like, I don't want to plan cities. I think we need to move from that idea of development to a new, like a shift of paradigm of where we can live. But that's very complicated because cities have been like growing uh, for the last decades like so rapidly and we're so used to that. For me it's amazing to go out from my house and see restaurants and museums and people and everything but I actually think it's not sustainable in the future for the road we're taking and we should actually start thinking of the creating new kind of spaces like new typologies to live in.
and not going to the suburb, because that was like an, an answer at some point, like, oh, we want nature and a calm life. We go to the suburb, but then we all have to go to the cities. And this is like what's been happening. So maybe start thinking about a different future. I think being very open to that, which is not easy. Can I just really, I think it's very important to, to add to, to this line of thought that, I mean, we're already there. We're already, I mean, the, the pandemic has really generated and changed the way we perceive where we live. So we have everything from people moving out of the city, like trying to have their urban life in the countryside or near to the city, work, for example, which is one of the big draws to central city living and one of the big attractions. Now it doesn't really matter if it's central or not or if it's in the office or not. So I, I definitely think that that paradigm is also shifting but as we speak, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that we necessarily need, need to imagine. I think it's, it's very interesting. There was a, a couple of other questions. Yes, Joanna and then in the back. And then the third, and I think that. I wanted to know what you think about education and how it's affecting our neighborhoods, especially in a big city like Mexico and how it's been changing. That's a very uh, a question. It's a very complicated question to answer, but I think we were talking about this earlier with with Mario outside before the event started, which is that um, governance needs to update. It needs to go uh, faster than the actual changes that we are seeing, and I think it's up to to the governance uh, of the cities to regulate uh, what happens in these neighborhoods. So uh, establish maybe a ceiling price for rents or property, uh, making sure that there is mixed, um, mixed options of affordable housing in well-connected neighborhoods. I think there's a, there, we were talking about this, there's a current program right now uh, called uh, Programa de Vivienda Incluyente, or Regeneración y Vivienda Incluyente, or something like that, which is uh, the government take, taking a look at maybe buildings that used to be offices previous to the pandemic and now they're they're trying to find new uses for, for these buildings exactly so um, it's up to them but also to other specialists to build these visions of how how these neighborhoods can look like and what can be done to control uh, gentrification which is a, uh, an extremely complicated uh, issue to control um. I'm going to try to be very, very sensible in my answer <laughs> and not try to offend anyone. Um, gentrification is just one part of the issue in terms of like the rising of, of prices, but we also need to look into its other phases, which is touristification, the convert, the, when cities become <laughs> sites that are basically serving people who come here uh, for short stays 
Um, I know a lot of people that have been evicted in the past few months and years in Mexico to make way for Airbnbs. Most of them are young and can rebuild their lives. Some of them are 80 years old plus and like basically they feel their lives are over. It's a problem also, it's one of the things that I've been, it's a, it's a topic for those of you who aren't living in Mexico City and are, and are not on Mexican Twitter. It's a topic that's getting much more present and unfortunately there's, it's becoming to have a lot of xenophobic overtones which I think is the wrong way because it's pointing direct responsibility on people, on foreigners who are finding Mexico City a very exciting place to be in and live in or, or have a short stay. And I think it's very important for us to welcome that energy and that cross-pollinization of ideas. The problem is when governments, through programs as the one you just mentioned, they actually stimulate the financial, the financial financialization of spaces in Mexico and high-rises that really only serve as financial assets and not as spaces for living. Concrete is one of the things that drive that. In forensic architecture, we have a term called the material witness, in which materials in and of themselves hold clues of the violence that, um, and that register forces of violence upon them. Concrete is one such material that is really good at registering those things. And when you have high rises that are made of these materials that are cheap and really facilitate the production of financial real estate, then we have a problem. I don't really think the Mexico City government is tending this problem. I don't think they're really, even programs such as the Programa de Vivienda Emergente, I think it's called. Uh, I mean, zoning laws keep changing. And I mean, I'll, I'll end on this. Like, this impulse to develop places like Mexico City for finance is also a driver of risk, not just social risk, but also risk for earthquakes. You know, once a building falls, you cannot recycle that concrete. So I think we also need to narrate the problem of gentrification in a different way that really points the responsibility at our decision makers, at the government, and not at the people who are at the receding end of those very intentionally poorly designed policies. I'll be quick, but... <laughs> the gentrification the real question is who does it really benefit to is it is it one percent or eighty percent I think it's pretty obvious uh, it has good sides like you were talking about like uh, uh, buildings being out of code have not been renovated maybe some accident could have been you know avoided if we had built new buildings but in general the results you see of gentrification do not yield the type of results that we're hoping for our cities and neighborhoods, do we? So just ask yourself, yeah, who really benefits from it? Thank you for tuning in to listen to these inspiring speakers. As our conversations continue on ground in Mexico City, please join us on Instagram at Space 10 for live updates. Sign up to our newsletter via Space10.com. And we're on Twitter and Facebook, too. See you soon.